This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, an airplane is resurrected from the dead. And aerobatic legend Sean Tucker makes a name for himself outside of the airport. Also, if you haven't heard, AOPA's Mark Baker is a living legend of aviation. And we're going to hear about a new air race debuting. All right, Dave, you ready to do some Hangar Talk? Let's do some Hangar Talk, Ian. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. The 1056 turn right heading 130, counterpack final 132.4. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. And uh, David, we got a fun guest this week, Simon Caldicott. Yeah, from Piper. Yeah, president of Piper. And um, he goes way back in the aviation industry. And we're going to talk about all the way back to where he started in the UK. I would like to hear about where he did start because I want to hear about the history. Yeah, and also you got to stick around because the question that everybody always asks him, and I had to ask him, was... Will you ever produce a cub again? A uh, super cub. Yeah. Will <laughs> you? And why or why not? So you got to hear his answer. It's a good okay, one. let's do it. All right, but first the news. Uh, an airplane that is being produced again, the uh, the Liberty. Do you remember this thing, the XL2? I do, Ian, because right when I was starting my flight training lessons uh, in Atlanta at PDK, there were a couple on the ramp. It was a two-person uh, low-wing aircraft. And give us some of the other modern details. Yeah, so you've probably seen one of these, even if maybe you didn't know what it was. Now it's called a Discovery Aviation XL2. Uh-huh. It's a two-place trainer, but it comes standard IFR equipped. And it's very economical. It is. As well. Yeah, it's actually, it was pretty much ahead of its time. You know, this thing debuted mid-2000s. Yeah. Went out of production in 2011. It's got a Fadec engine, which is pretty impressive. That's neat. It's a yeah. continental version of the Fadec engine, right? Yeah, is that's that right. Yeah, and so what it does is it pushes it along at 125 knots at four and a half to five and a half gallons an hour. That's air coop GPH. Yeah, I like it, man. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, and it's uh, like we said, standard IFR um, composite and a really really cool little airplane. So they're making these again. They are neat aircraft, and like you said, they're a little ahead of their time. They they look kind of sleek nowadays. When they first came out, I wanted to say they look more. I, I, we were talking about this off 
fluffier, a little bit more Sonic-y to me. Yeah, but yeah. A little bit more tapered now, a little bit more finished. Yeah, they're a little plump uh, uh-huh. in the center <laughs> yeah. to make it roomy there for the two people. Believe it or not, before they these things went out of production, they they actually made 135 of them. That's a pretty good amount. It is. And now they're based out of Melbourne, Florida. Is that correct? Yep. Yep. That's I right. I remember. I remember when uh, that story was a story back in the mid 2000s as well. Yeah. If you're looking for a new trainer, uh, Discovery Aviation's got one for you, the XL2. A nice instrument trainer to boot. Yeah. All yeah. right. Cool. All right. So this story I'm really excited to talk about. This is just a phenomenal program. Sean Tucker. We all know Sean Tucker, right? Yeah. Aerobatic Air, Aerobatic Hall of Famer there. Yeah. Uh, an amazing guy and just such a passionate guy about the future of aviation. Right. Um, and helping kids and sort of passing it on. And he was mentored by Bob Hoover. Bob Hoover, the legendary air show performer who who was noted for going upside down with two engines not turned on. I know. Amazing, amazing <laughs> stuff. And pouring the tea. You can't forget yeah, the, t- the barrel yeah, roll yeah, with the tea. Yeah. Um, anyway, so Sean has um, has started this program out where he's from in Salinas, California. And it, uh, it brings kids to the airport and gets them involved in aviation. And it's, I mean, the news hook here is they got a new sim. But tell us a little bit about the program because it's just phenomenal. Well, this is an interesting program, and I'm glad we, we brought up to talk about it. So the Bob Hoover Academy is really geared towards, uh, towards kids that live in Salinas. And I didn't know this before we started uh, checking into it, but Sean did tell us at EA AirVenture when we spoke to him that the young people there have one of the highest murder rates in uh, California yeah. and, and in, in the United States. Yeah. And, and one reason for that is that their parents are, a lot of their parents are in agriculture, mm. and they work very long and on very hard hours. So the kids have a lot of time to, to get into trouble. Yeah. So the Hoover Academy tries to stop that trend and, and gets folks involved with aviation. Mm-hmm. It helps them build self-esteem, and it introduces them to the world of aviation, which could be a fantastic career for young people. Yeah, it's phenomenal. He was um, a speaker at Redbird Migration this past fall, and... Uh, I, I hadn't honestly heard of the program before that, but he got up and he showed a promotional video. He says, this is what, you know, he talks about his his aerobatic background and everything else. But then he shows this promotional video and says, this is what I'm really passionate about. And it's a kid and he talks about how much he liked going to the academy and everything yeah. else. And, and uh, Sean, he's, he stopped the video at the end and he's like, he's like that kid. Uh, his, I, I can't remember exactly, brother or cousin uh, was murdered. Mm-hmm. His other cousin was murdered or wow. murdered somebody else is in jail. And he's like, and this kid's going to college. And um, and could be the first person in that family to go to college. Yeah. You know, Sean Sean calls these young people um, our precious jewels. Yeah. And he, he wants to nurture them and help mentor them. And, you know, that's to really be commended, uh, not just for anyone following in his aviation footsteps, but just in general. That's a, a good amount of giving back for someone yeah. who really doesn't have to. Exactly right. Yeah, he doesn't have to. He could just focus on his own flying and his own sponsorships and everything else. But, uh, but no, he, he spends the time and the effort and the money yeah. to do it. It's well, they're, they're mission statement is pretty neat. I'm just going to read a little bit uh, from that, just a couple of words. So the program's mission statement explains that the high school academy uses the power of flight to change lives Hmm. and incorporates science, technology, engineering, and math into that. Like I said, it helps give the kids a little bit more self-esteem. It gives them something to do. It exposes them to the world of aviation. Yeah. Very cool. So the Bob Hoover Academy, they've got a new Redbird Sim that they'll use just like any other training organization. And uh, we're talking about this a little bit off air, but the reason why is that they only have one 172 right now online, Mm. and as far as I know. And this Redbird enables them to like double and triple up on their uh, lesson plans. And they're also going to use it to like pre-brief and debrief and fly over and over and over. And it really helps the students learn what they did and how to do it better. Hmm. 
Fantastic. Yeah, it's a good a good idea. Very cool. So from uh, Tucker and Hoover, both legends of aviation, to Mark Baker, a new living legend of aviation. And there's a program coming up soon as we record the podcast, Ian. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit more about the Living Legends. Yeah, so Living Legends is this really cool event that they have every year. It's actually for this group called the Kitty Hawk Air Academy, and this is their fundraiser. But it's just incredible. They get a who's who of aviation and really of Hollywood yeah. out to this event in, in uh, L.A. every year. And they uh, honor various aviators around the country and, and around the world. And so Mark Baker this year, uh, one of the many folks who will be honored at the event, inducted as a living legend. That's pretty awesome. And we also talk a little bit about some of our, our software that helps us fly. And Tyson Ways from Four Flight is going to mm-hmm. be honored as well. Yep, Tyson. Uh, some others, I saw Felix Baumgartner was on there, the guy who, you know, jumped out of the balloon oh, yeah. in space. Yeah, yeah. Adros Pro Jr., who's uh, this, you know, flew the helicopter around the world. And this this one I love. This is the irony of all ironies. So I, I don't know if you heard that the um, director of the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum is retiring this year, Jack Daly. And so he's going to be honored with the Udvar Hazy Award. Oh, now that's kind of <laughs> apropos, isn't it? Because folks who aren't familiar with Washington, D.C. area, that's the uh, that's where all the planes are parked. Yeah. That all is, the airplanes are parked for, yeah. the, for the Smithsonian. So he's going to get an award from his own museum. Which that's is, pretty know, cool. His own museum. All right. So, David, you teased this one at the top. Um, this is a really, really cool thing to get more people flying and uh, building money for a scholarship program. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the inaugural Paradise 600 air race that Jill Tallman wrote about. It's going to take place in May, right around... Uh, Memorial Day weekend, the 24th through the 26th. And the starting point is going to be down in Keyfield Airport in Meridian, Mississippi. Have mm-hmm. you ever been down there? Uh, I have. Yeah. Uh, I've yep. covered some hurricanes in that part of the yeah. world. <laughs> and so it's a 600-mile route that goes through Punta Gorda Airport in Florida. Mm-hmm. It goes to uh, the home of Tuskegee Airmen at, is it Mottenfield or Motonfield? In Alabama, where yep. the Tuskegee Airmen trained. And then uh, goes through uh, Tift Airport in Georgia. And then uh, Williston, Municipal Airport in Florida. It's a 600-mile route. This is not a very expensive race to enter. It's 125 bucks for nice. a pilot and a co-pilot. And uh, we're talking about this a little bit ahead of time that you and I were thinking about entering it, right? Yeah. Because <laughs> only one person needs to be a pilot. Mm-hmm. And the other doesn't have to be. It's 60 bucks for each additional passenger. Yeah. It's really cool, actually, because most of these races... You know, it's like, I don't know if the rules say that everybody has to be a pilot, but generally everybody in the airplane is. Yeah. Uh, but this way it's, you know, you, it's like a friend who might be interested in aviation or might be just getting started. It's like, whoop, bring him in the airplane. Or a flight student. Yeah. Who, who wants to gain some experience in some time. That's that right. That could work. Yeah. And uh, unlike the Airways Classic, which is uh, all women, this one is open to men and women. This is more like the Hayward Air Rally. Yeah, in California. Yeah, uh, which is a lot of fun, too. So a uh, really cool little thing. And these are, you know, low, like you said, low bar to entry and get out there flying and just have a good weekend and meet some new friends. I think it would be a lot of fun. And the areas that they're going to are, are really conducive for nice flying. Yeah, no, that's true. So we're taking it up a notch. Uh, let's say I'm a better pilot than this air race. And, and I want to show my skills to the world. And uh, I just, I, these air races are too below me. Wh- where would I go? Well, Ian, I think you're probably at the level of uh, participating in the Red Bull Air Race World Championships, yeah. or almost. Yeah, there you go. Or That's, you could aspire to that. Yeah, yeah, there you go. That's more my style. So yeah. so the Red Bull <laughs> folks, they've been putting out a pretty cool air show for a number of years now. And they did recently announce some of the 2018 dates. Now, not all of them are set in stone. Let's uh, let our podcast listeners know that 
but about half of them are. Mm. We know for sure there's going to be October date, uh, October 6th and 7th in Indianapolis, USA, cool. like we had last year and the year before. Cool. And we know that we're also going to start out in uh, February, on the 2nd and 3rd of February in Abu Dhabi. Mm. And, um, and there's going to be a stop in uh, France for the first time. And also they're going back to Budapest, is nice. that how you pronounce it? Yeah, yeah. Budapest, and that, is that where they go under the bridge and everything? It's just really cool. They're right yeah, on the they river. Yeah, some of those great venues in Europe. Yeah. So that's in Hungary, and then they're going to stop in Russia, and also they're going to have two Asia locations. So this is pretty neat. Yoshi Moroyo of Japan was last year's winner. Yeah. And the Asia dates are probably going to you know bring a huge crowd. Yep. That's very cool. Very cool. Uh, but this Indy race uh, is phenomenal. You know, to see them inside the any Motor Speedway and that have them take is off really and land nice. There, well, it's, it's kind of neat because cool. you're all kind of in one spot and yeah. you're you know you're able to see the race a little bit better. Yeah. And it's going to be the third year in a row for that stop there. Yeah. And the drama is incredible. Yeah. Very and, cool. and it sets up it sets up the final race of the year. And usually the folks go into that next to the last race. I mean, uh, it, it pretty much is a championship. Yeah. That's very cool. Cool. So let's uh, go on to CES. We talked about this a little bit last time, the Consumer Electronics Show. Normally, this isn't something that uh, aviation is really concerned much with. I mean, you'll find that like the avionics folks go there to learn what kind of the new tech is on screens yeah. and processors and all that. But pilots this time, I think it's like sit up and take notice a little bit because the world of drones and specifically of manned manufacturers yeah. going to the drone world, that's that's starting to show at, the, at this at this event. So it's what's kind of neat about it, Ian, is that you know some of the drone stuff is just so, if you if you would it's scaled up yeah. to human size yep. at this point. And this is really neat. And there's a lot of more interest in uh, in these human drones because they could be like air taxis. We're kind of we're starting to be on the cusp of actually seeing that happen. Yeah. Uh, barring other other technical difficulties with airspace and things like that. Yeah. But the technology is getting to the point where it actually could work. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think this is something where we're going to see, and, and probably not like uh, unlike driverless cars, where the technology will be available long before sort of the world is ready for right. it. Right. You know? Well, because even when we talked about this in a couple other podcasts, even with in regards to airspace, yeah. uh, you know, we're sharing it now with drones. You yeah. Know, uh, man pilots are sharing it with, the you know, the lower versions of the of our airspace with drones, lower altitudes, rather. And so now you know, with these scaled-up drones, there'll be, you know— yeah. Bit, yeah, a lot of folks kind of hovering around there like the like George Jetson and Yeah, them. that's right. A lot of stuff to work out there. But there's some key companies that are involved that you started to point out and uh one of them if I'm not mistaken is um is Bell. Uh-huh. And they have forged a, a relationship recently with Uber and also we're hearing a little bit more about Thrush Aircraft. And Thrush uh, aircraft, they're, they're known for their ag aircraft, mm -hmm. and they're looking to, to make basically a turboprop type of, of drone. So this is kind of neat. It is neat. And then uh, we talked a little bit about Aurora Flight Sciences, mm -hmm. which uh, is integrating some remote controls into traditional manned aircraft. Yeah. That Aurora, by the way, they're, they're based near us, right, down in Manassas? Okay. Um, I, and I went down there a couple months ago. It's an incredible operation. Are those are the folks with the diamonds. Yeah. Okay. So what they do is they do all kinds of amazing stuff. I don't know if you guys saw this on YouTube, but um, there was a car. It was I think it was a at first maybe it was like a 737 sim or something, and then somebody flying a caravan where this robot arm, the robot copilot, basically uh -huh. does all the. Oh, I did see that on YouTube. Yes. Yeah. So Aurora makes that. Uh -huh. They're also doing it for a helicopter, which is incredible. Oh wow. Um, but they've got this diamond, this DA42, that I, I think at first I thought, well, is it just 
flying like test missions or something. So this thing is optionally piloted. Uh-huh. So for FAA purposes, for scene avoid, it's like a pilot can sit in the seat and you know, essentially somebody on the ground flies the mission. Yeah. Or in these UAS test sites, this thing is fully autonomous. That's amazing. So it's a DA-42 that they put this all this gear in, uh, rip out the seats, and the thing flies, like, completely on its own, you know, with a, with a ground pilot. But So you still need a pilot, but they're on the ground. Yeah, exactly. That's so exactly there's still right. a job for pilots. Yeah, right. Well, that's true, actually. And it's funny enough, the operator is a pilot. Yeah, I would imagine you have to be. Yeah. Um, but you still got to know airspace, but I guess a oh, lot yeah, of that yeah. can be programmed in there. Yeah, it's just incredible to see this stuff at work. And these guys, I mean... They do like way out there kind of stuff like, you know, UAS that stays aloft for days up at high altitudes and just a really phenomenal operation. The, the whole idea is is really starting to mature like we're talking about you know, right here. And Lockheed Martin, another big player, mm-hmm. uh, they've entered a deal with, I guess they've got some versions of manned helicopters that they're trying to convert to, to unmanned. Yeah. And um, I was going to mention one thing that caught my eye was this Moby One company. Hmm. And this looks like a kind of a... A big drone, like a like a big DJI. Okay. And um, I, I'm just curious about that. And, you know, and as the technology gets a little bit more mature, and we're able to build some of these things to to hold people, you wrote something uh, recently, um, Ian, about helicoptering that I found interesting, and I wonder how this would affect this type of uh, aviation environment, mm. the vortex ring state. Yeah. And and for folks who are thinking about popping up off the ground in their front yard or their backyard in one of these, you know, ginormous <laughs> drones, yeah. what's, a, what's one thing to look out for? Because this looks pretty serious. Yeah. I mean, I, some people call it settling with power. Um, the military and, and internationally, it seems like, call it vortex ring state, which is probably a more accurate description. But it's... um. You know, it's funny. I mean, it's something you have to think about, but it's not unlike stalls in an airplane or anything else. Uh-huh. Where, um, and this is what I guess what I was saying a couple of minutes ago. Where I think the the technical problems here are easy. Uh huh. You know, programming. I mean, we've had auto land in airplanes for decades, right? Okay. So programming stuff where the machine flies it, I think, will be not a problem. It's whether we're all ready for it. But vortex ring state to answer your question, it's this. It's essentially you can't descend. You have to have a, a couple of conditions uh-huh. for it to happen, a couple of known conditions. Kind of like a stall. You can't ex- If you don't exceed the angle of attack, you don't stall, period. Okay. Right? Okay. So vortex ring state is as long as you're not descending at more than 300 feet per minute, okay. you're not going to be in it. Is it like dirty air that you're sinking through? Essentially. So the, so the blades aren't able to bite the air? I mean, yeah, that's basically what happens. Yeah, and it's progressive in the sense that, you know, once you're in it, you, now you're descending more than 300 feet a minute. Well, that makes you descend faster, and as you descend faster, it gets worse. And so, oh, it could sure. And sure until until you contact the Earth. Yeah, that's right. So uh, I don't know if you remember the Bin Laden raid and that Black Hawk that uh, crashed on the, inside the compound. I remember the story. Yeah, yeah. So they think you weren't there. Uh, not at that one. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't shoot that. You didn't cover that. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been cool. Yeah. Anyway, they there's there is a there's thought in the community that that what brought that down was vortex ring state. Is that right? Yeah. So now, does it also have to be like you know uh, when you're thinking a little bit about vortexes and as as a fixed wing pilot, we're thinking a little bit about where the wind is coming from and mm-hmm. going to. Does it also have to be where there's not much wind going on? Uh, so wind has an effect on it, but no, it can be under no wind cross. Crosswind, any of it. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. So, so it's basically it's descending through the vo- the vortex of your blades. Yeah, you, faster than three hundred feet per minute. Yep. Now, what? Why three hundred feet per minute? I don't mean to put you on the spot. No, but that's okay. I mean, I don't know the physics behind it that well, other than to say that it's. I think 
um, that's the rate at which you start to settle as fast as the air coming okay. off your blade settles. So as a helicopter pilot, when we're ready to touch down, just in a Robinson, you went flying on R44 recently. Mm-hmm. So um, you're landing at, what, 50 feet a minute or something like that? Or? Um, well, it's progressive, right? So you can yeah. descend at 50 feet. You can. So the other thing I, I hadn't mentioned yet is you have to be slower than, uh, they call it ETL, which is, call it, you know, somewhere between 25 and 30 knots. Okay. So as long as you're going faster than okay. 25 or 30 knots, you can descend as fast as you want. Okay. Because you're the the air is going, you know, the dirty air is going behind you. I see. So you can, you know, you can slam down the collective and really descend fast because the air is going way back. You're right? leaving the air. Yeah, behind exactly. You. Okay. Exactly right. But if you're going slow, oh, it's you're sort of catching up to it. Yeah. Or you're sort of at the same speed of. Yep. Oh, okay. Yep. So if we're gonna, you know, look at this in the future. Yeah. We'll have to figure out a way to avoid that state yeah. in some of the key uh, topics that you just mentioned, um, some of the techniques. And, and, or you, you can come in and turn a little bit to yeah. kind of get out of it. I mean, as long as you're you're going fast enough or descending slow enough, I guess uh-huh. is the way you would say uh-huh. that. Uh, yeah, yeah, you're going to be fine. And so I think it would be, I mean, if you think about an approach, an airplane, helicopter, doesn't matter. It's like it's a simple, like, angular mathematical issue, right? And I think it's like... As long as there aren't obstructions, which they'll have, you know, ground radar or whatever that shows those, uh-huh. uh, every time it can program in the same approach profile. I got you covered. So that it's yeah. like you'd never even be close to that. Okay. Yeah. I just thought it was interesting because I, mean, I, I read what you wrote in, in Flight Trading Magazine, and I thought it was very, very cool just being a novice helicopter pilot. Yeah. And I wanted to ask a little bit about it with the technology coming up. You know, what are some things to look out for? Yeah. So, yeah. I But I think, um, man, it's like... The engineers are going to be saying, just like with cars, it's like, okay, we're ready to go. And the rest of us are going to be like, yeah, but we're not <laughs> flying around you. We're not riding in this. Right. You know? We're a little scared now. Yeah. So that's, that's I think, the real question. Interesting stuff. Yeah. Cool stuff on the horizon. We'll have to keep an eye on that. And, you know, we're not too far away from sun and fun, so who knows what they're going to bring out. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Or Friedrichshafen over at— uh, Oh, that'll come up. Yeah, up yeah. in Germany. Right on. You know, it's funny. We're just talking about all these future optionally piloted stuff and everything else. But um, the Cub. You know, yeah. going way back. One of those iconic airplanes coming out of Piper for decades and decades between the J3 and even the J2 and the Super Cub and all the variations. Piper, Simon, one thing that he changed was they they started recognizing their heritage with the Cub. Oh, is that right? And Simon's really proud of that and, and focusing on training and kind of going back to the roots of what Piper did well. You know, he um, one of his first acts, and he's going to talk about this, is he killed the jet program. To sort of refocus the company, I had forgotten that pipe about the Piper Jet. Yeah, so they're going back to rediscover their roots, which started near what Lock Haven, Pennsylvania, and yep. went down to Vero Beach. Yep, um, that's going to be kind of neat and, and celebrate those. That's right. And you talked to him via Skype. Yep, yep. So he and I chatted via Skype, and uh, I thought we had a great talk. Uh, let's hear about it. Simon, um, thanks so much for joining us. Um, I want to obviously talk about Piper's success, and, and we'll get there. But first, I, I want folks to hear a little bit about you and kind of your background and where you come from. Okay. Uh, well, thanks, Ian. Thanks for inviting me to, to be on the call with you today. And um, so I've been around aviation over 40 years now. I started my aviation career straight out of, of grammar school. Um, I was born in the northwest part of England, 
and I uh, was fortunate to have uh, an engineering apprenticeship program with Hawker Siddeley Aviation. Part of that program included uh, my uh, studies for aeronautical engineer at a technical college in North Wales. So uh, it's a five-year program. You started at, at, you know, on the shop floor. In fact, you started in a training school. When you weren't at college, you actually learned to, to use the tools. And then in your second and third year, you actually worked on the shop floor building aircraft. So um, it wasn't until the fourth year of my apprenticeship program that I actually got to really do what I wanted to do, and that was to, to work in an engineering office and, and do all the different engineering um, aspects associated with our, bit, with our business, which is everything from being, working as a production engineer, an industrial engineer, a quality engineer. And finally, I ended up in the design engineering team, which is really what I wanted to do. I wanted to design airframes. So that was, that was my sort of passion growing up as a kid was I wanted to design airplanes. So I ended up there and um, did that for a few years. And then I was fortunate that um, at that time, Hawker Siddeley had become part of British Aerospace. And while it was British Aerospace, I was uh, fortunate to go on a two-year management development program. And uh, as a result of that, afterwards, I went back into engineering as as a design manager, running a group of 120 engineers for about a year um, before they asked me to take over and head up the production for what at that time was the British Aerospace 125 executive jet, which later became known as the Hawker um, executive jet. So, you know, I moved into manufacturing back in the mid-80s and uh, ran programs and plants for a number of years for British Aerospace. Uh, Raytheon acquired the Hawker business jet in the early 90s. I continued running that for a few more years in the UK before they decided to, to move the final assembly to Wichita, Kansas. And that's, of course, what brought me to the United States. I moved my family in the in the middle of 1995 and um, set up production of the Hawker 800, did that for a few years. Once that was running, I then took on responsibility for the other Hawker programs, which included the what used to be the Beach Jet 400, which became known as the Hawker 400, followed by the Hawker 4000. And then ultimately, I took over as vice president of assembly operations for Raytheon Aircraft and was running all of their commercial aircraft assembly program. Uh, everything from the uh, Baron Bonanzas, the King Airs, and of course the Hawker program. So did that for a number of years and uh, left, of course, uh, left in '09 after Raytheon sold it to Goldman Sachs and it became Hawker Beechcraft. So I left in '09 and that's when Piper came after me and I came to, to Vero Beach in uh, October of 2009 as chief of production for what was going to be the single engine jet program. Did that for not quite a year and then took over running operations here in Vero Beach. And not quite a year later, I uh, took over running the company. So in October 2011, I took over as CEO. And really, that was the, a big challenge in that first thing I did, of course, is I shut the jet program down. It just yeah. didn't make financial sense the way the market had gone. I mean, that program, like all the other people that were looking at those single engine light jets, was launched in 2006. And we know that 2009, this industry took a big decline. And really, I was facing a, a big challenge of, do I need to continue investing in this program or do I need to invest in something else? And, and I took the decision to shut the jet down, invest in all of our other products, which have a very good uh, legacy, a very good history. We have some great uh, training products. Piper had not been focused on those, certainly since the announced the jet in 2006. So... 
So I had five years worth of catching up to do in terms of bringing our training products up to date. So we actually went out and, and surveyed um, a number of flight schools, both uh, domestically and internationally, to find out what they needed, what they were looking for. At the same time, back in 2011, at that time, Boeing was forecasting there was going to be a global shortage of pilots over the next 20 years. In fact, I remember the number very well. It was 518,000 pilots were going to be required over the next 20 years, and that was in 2011. Here we are today, and that shortage has grown by another 100,000. In fact, their report that came out back in July of this year, if you remember, was 617,000 yeah. uh, pilots over the next 20 years. So six years on, and we've actually got 99,000 pilots worse. So the problem is growing. So for me, it obviously made sense knowing that Piper's legacy was training aircraft. Of course, the J3 Cub being the, the best trainer that Piper's ever made, there was an opportunity. So I obviously set about bringing the training products up to the, the current configurations with all the latest avionics, doing some other things. Such as, as you know, we've put the diesel engine in the Archer. We've done, uh, now got a fuel-injected version of the Archer. The latest avionics are all G1000, the latest NXI now. So making sure that we're offering the flight schools the best and, and the newest and most technically advanced avionics so that they can provide professional training with glass cockpits. So I think we've met that criteria. We've done those things. That's obviously helped that market. At the same time, Having now shut the jet program down, I needed to then find out what do we need to do with our bigger products for our individual owners. And, and after, having met with a number of my dealers and customers, it wasn't necessarily a jet that was required. It was a plane that was capable of carrying 800 pounds, 1,000 nautical miles comfortably with minimal effort. And that was our charter that I set the engineering team. At the same time, I told them I wanted the best avionics in there and we were going to need to restyle the interior. And as a result of that charter, we developed the M600, which came to market in, uh, in fact, we certified it in June of 2016. We started deliveries in July of 2016, and we are having a great success with continuing those deliveries on the M600. And now we've actually got most of our foreign certifications, including YASA, and we're delivering them internationally. So we've come a long way in the last six years, and I'm pretty pleased with where we're at. And... Um, I believe our strategy is, has got paper where it needs to be right now, and we're looking forward to a strong future. So you mentioned one of the first things that you did was kill the jet. That was a, a, obviously a very big decision, a big deal at the time. So it, it was your baby, obviously. How does it feel? I mean, is this the engineering background of you where you just looked at it objectively and said, ah, forget it, it doesn't make sense? Or do you have emotional attachment to these projects where that's a really difficult decision to make? Obviously, there's personnel decisions that make it hard. Right. No, I mean, that's a great question, Ian. Obviously, as an engineer, coming up with new ideas, innovation, developing things, it's a passion. Everybody likes to see that. However, the other side of me, I'm a businessman as well, and, and I wear a business hat, and, and some of my education, I mean, I went to, uh, I was fortunate during my British Aerospace days to, to have certain uh, programs at London Business School, well, I was with Raytheon, I went to Chicago Business School, uh, did a mini MBA, so I'm very much focused on the business as well. Things have to make financial sense. You know, you've got to take the emotions out of these things at times, and you've got to really look at the data, and when you look at the data, it said this is not a good path for Piper aircraft to be going down right now. The way the economy was in 2011, 
Um, as you know, post-2009, the whole of GA took such a big hit that to continue uh, putting a lot of investment into a program that's going to have a very, very long return on it just doesn't make financial sense. So mm. the numbers are what drove it. Therefore, it was a case of, okay, so what does make financial sense for the business? And, and that's when you look at the things like you know 600,000 pilots needed over the next 20 years. You look at the existing uh, customer base for our M-Class products. You know, we, we've got a very, very good, strong customer base between the Mirage, the Meridian, and of course, the, the newer models, the 350, the 500, and now the 600. So we've already got an installed base of good customers there, and we're continuing to draw customers from other areas for that. I mean, one of the beauties about introducing something like the M600, which is, I believe, we positioned it very well in that it's a million dollars less than the, the closest competitor it has very very attractive operating costs and therefore for people who maybe have found their jet too expensive this is a nice option for that small jet customer to step down at the same time it's a nice step up for somebody from a cirrus uh, 22 or from a cessna 182 we've had a number of people step up or if they're not comfortable going straight into the 600 we're able to offer them the m350 followed by 500 stepping up into the 600 so I think the way we've positioned our product line is attractive to a broader customer base. Now, it's funny because you, you obviously have a jet background. I mean, that was your training and education, you said. But um, but you've really celebrated the Cub unlike some of your predecessors. Why is that? Is that a strategic decision? Do you have sort of a personal affinity for it? Do you think it's important for the brand? What do you think about the Cub? So, so the Cub, obviously, I mean, that is what, Piper was based on. That was William Piper's first plane. It, it, it's an iconic uh, legacy of this company. Um, who doesn't know that famous little yellow cub? And the minute I took over as the CEO, in fact, the, my office, first thing I did is I took down a bunch of old pictures and photographs that were in here, and I put up a picture of a cub, because that really is our legacy. And then I put up, at the time, a picture of our M. Five hole. It was a Meridian at the time because that was our flagship airplane. I've since replaced that picture of the Meridian with one of a pair of 600s flying because that's now our flagship. So the Cub's the history of this company. And to me, it's an important part of the branding of Piper. Um, but the other side of it is I am passionate about aviation. I have an aeronautical background. I learned to fly in the 90s. And the, the Cub's just a great little plane. It's a great plane to fly around in. It really is about aviation. So uh, why not celebrate it? Why not use it to our advantage? That is our legacy. And uh, so many people know it. I think any pilot that came here today, if I said I was going to take you for a flight in a, club, a Cub, they'd jump at it just yeah. for the sheer fun of flying around in a Piper Cub. So I'm going to ask you the question that everybody who comes to Oshkosh and buys a Cub t-shirt asks you, which is, why doesn't Piper, why don't you make the Cub anymore? <laughs> And you're not the first one to ask me. Yeah. And a lot of those people who, who buy T-shirts might ask it. My, my dealers have asked it as well. Obviously, you know, the Cub's an old plane in, in terms of design, in terms of technology. Um, there are obviously a number of competitors out there now uh, competing against Cub. Were we to bring back the Cub, then obviously we'd have to do a certain amount of, of re-engineering on it because some of the components are now obsolete. Okay, you can get aftermarket PMA parts for those planes still flying. But if we were going to go into production, then we'd obviously want to take a look at it and, and re-engineer certain parts of it. By the time you factor in re-engineering it, 
completely retooling it because, I mean, we haven't built the Cubs for such a long time that we don't have all the tooling now, but we'd have to tool it up again. Does it really make good financial sense? Um, I could probably make a business case, but at the end of the day, what really is driving our business today? And I would rather see us investing more in the uh, professional flight training, such as the the PA-28, because of that demand of, of 618 or 617,000 pilots over the next 20 years. They're going to be more inclined to learn to fly in a PA-28 than they are in a uh, a GA3 Cub. So it's, it's just a case of priorities. I mean, it'd be great to do a Cub for the fun of it. Um, might be able to make a, a business case. It would probably be a slim one. Um, I would rather work <laughs> on, on the things that, that, you know, strengthen the business and, and they're going to go on for a long time. Hmm. Now, you mentioned the PA28 um, and, its, and its sort of cousins. You guys have had great success the past couple of years. I mean, when you look at the gamma numbers, it's, it's really impressive and you've won some really big contracts for some fleet orders. So, I guess it maybe it's a, a bit of an obvious question, but why? I mean, why have you had such great success? So I think it's a number of things, Ian, that factor into that. First of all, it's listening to the customers. What is it they want? Um, and I mentioned before about, about product improvements, so making sure we've got the right level of equipment on those products, whether it's a G1000 or glass cockpit, or whether it's fuel-injected engines or diesel engines. We've We've provided those options. At the same time, another big component of it is relationships. It's actually going out and meeting those customers or prospective customers and listening to it, find out what they need, and then uh, working with them to make sure that they understand how our product can satisfy their needs. And a lot of these relationships, I, I put a big element down to it to our sales team. Um, we do all of our fleet sales direct from the factory, and, and we have our own in-house sales team between their efforts and, and you know anybody on the team making themselves available to meet with prospective customers or existing customers to to really listen to what they want and, and show them that we can deliver on what they're asking. Um, so the other thing is that um, when, when you look at the customer base that that we're now creating, uh, there's a lot of collegiate programs there, and on some of the bigger collegiate programs, we've also offered scholarships. So we're actually doing some scholarships at some of the, the collegiate programs like University of North Dakota and um, Florida Institute of Technology when they took planes. For every plane they bought, we put a certain dollar amount into scholarship fund to help them entice and, and, and have funding to get more pilots to learn to fly. So just generally promoting this whole shortage of pilots. So, so doing things like that, um, but, but becoming a true partner. The, one of the other big components, and I've preached it to my sales team and I always talk to prospective customers about it, is as much as I, I would love a prospective customer come and knock on my door tomorrow and tell me he wants to buy 100 airplanes um, and he might want them all next year, uh, that's really not what, not what I want. What I would rather, he knocked on my door and said, I want 100 airplanes, but I want to buy 10 or 15 a year off you over the next you know, 7 to 10 years and create a long-term relationship with these flight schools so that we're creating this pipeline. And, and that's really the philosophy that we've taken. So it's creating long-term relationships with the, with the flight schools. Mm. So with that in mind, I mean, you know, I mentioned the gamma numbers and they're continuing to grow. What do you see in the next couple of years in terms of production? I mean, I know you have some contracts that pretty much you know you're going to have to fill, but um, do you anticipate even better years to come? Or um, what do you think? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean... <laughs> You know, we're really, the last 
two years, we've really seen the the, uh, the fruits of the efforts that the sales team have been putting into it, and um, it just continues to grow. I mean, sales are not—they're not a given. They are worked, you know, and I mean the team has to put a lot of effort into it and continue to put a lot of effort into it. And um, some of them start small. Some of the flight schools that we're providing to today um, are just maybe taking one or two. We know that they're going to need more, and and we're seeing that. So I expect that uh, we will continue to see increases for the next two or three years. Um, Certainly the demand from the flight schools is there. I think a lot of them are also realizing now they need the glass cockpits for the training. So we're seeing more and more flight schools, especially with older equipment, now starting to re-equip. So I just, I just see this growing at a nice steady rate for the next few years. And what about diesel? I mean, is there a market for it in the U.S. or is it primarily international? And, and how does a school make those economics worth for the increased premium on the airplane? Obviously, they, the economics work very well internationally, certainly in Europe. Where, where Avgas is a lot more expensive than here in the U.S. In the U.S., it has been margin, marginal in terms of do I go with Avgas or do I go with jet-fueled aeroplane? And it, a lot of it depends on the economics and the timing. But overall, I think you can make a business case now, even in the U.S., for a diesel engine plane. It break even or better. So it's just a case of, of somebody taking that leap of faith, I think, to, to uh, go with diesel here. But we are doing more and more of them internationally. And um, certainly I expect we'll start to see more and more of them break out here in the U.S. as well shortly. And so has there been much uptake yet in the U.S. or has it been primarily all international up to this point? All of ours so far have been international. We've had, we've had a number of requests uh, domestically. Um, and some of our existing customers have options in there to convert when they feel the time's right, when the economics... Um, suit them even better. But I do see it coming. I see it coming very soon. And what about more future power plants, things like electric, hybrid, you know, you're seeing stuff out of like Airbus and lots of others. You're an engineer. What does that look like for you? Obviously, I'm not going to tell you exactly what we're going to do and where we're going to go, but we look at all of those things. I mean, I have a very small group of advanced design um, engineers, and, and that's their charter is to go and look at new technology uh, whether it's power plants, whether it's avionics, whether it's some other system, even airframes. What should we be doing in order to advance our products or develop newer products that will fit in those spaces and compete? So so we're looking at it. Uh, I'm a firm believer that um, certainly over the next 10 to 15 years, we're going to see a significant change in the, uh, in the power plants that we, we put in aircraft. It's just a matter of time. It's going to be completely different uh, across the product range at the very small ones. I can see um, an opportunity for some all electric there. But as you get larger with the plane, there's going to be some form of hybrid power generation. It's coming. It's definitely coming. And we obviously are, are looking at a number of projects there and involved with uh, several different different operations. So it's a case of watch your space, but it is coming. Now, I have a sense for some of the other projects that are kind of ongoing that that maybe technology is even outpacing regulation at this point. I don't know if you have a feeling about that or if you feel like FAA and EASA and everybody else is, it's like, hey, when the technology is there, we're ready to go too. Um, so obviously, you know, I'll change my hats instead of the Piper CEO, I'll, I'll put on my former hat as chairman of Gamma and, and my association with Gamma. Gamma has done a lot to help um, both the FAA, EASA, and some of the other 
authorities see what this new technology is emerging. They created a, um, a committee, or Gamma created a committee um, called EPIC, which was Electric Propulsion Innovation Committee. Um, and looking at the new technology and where it's going to fit and how do we regulate it going forward. So that committee is, is obviously keeping the FAA and the other authorities abreast of, of what's coming so that we can, we can have the right regulations in place, as well as the new Part 23 rewrite that came out um, and actually came into effect in August of this year, will help it because a lot of those regulations are based on the size and the, and the performance of the product. So you're going, you're going to regulate something at the bottom end a lot different than you would a, a plane at the top of the spectrum. So I think the FAA and everybody's starting to understand those things. Um, it should be easier as we move forward to regulate some of these new technologies. So keep that gamma hat on and... Um... Tell me about uh, the future, future GA, uh, outside of Piper. How do you feel about it? What are you excited about? What do you see happening? What do you think some of our biggest challenges are? Obviously, the future of GA, the things we see, both both from a, a Piper perspective as well as, I think, from an in- industry, um, one is the shortage of, of new pilots and, you know, how do we attract more people to learn to fly? So, as you know, uh, Gamma has a couple of programs that it's working on. is the STEM program. Um, and the build a, the build a plane that we encourage uh, schools to compete, uh, and the winning school then gets to build a plane once a year. So there's programs like that. It, it, it's encouraging the youth of tomorrow to get engaged in aviation, and, and that that could be a job either get them to learn to fly as a pilot, because whilst whilst there's a shortage of pilots, there's going to be a shortage of all the other disciplines in aviation, whether it's aviation AMP mechanics, whether it's engineers. Anybody that supports an aircraft, there's going to be a shortage going forward. So at least expose them to the careers that are available in aviation. So, so Gamma's doing its part there. We at Piper see the same thing. I mean, we, we're obviously interested in how do we get more people to come into aviation. That's probably one of the biggest challenges that I think we, we all face over the next few years. But it, it, it's real, and um, I think we can do it. And, of course, you know, Piper's avenue to that is to make sure that there's enough equipment to train future pilots, and hopefully we uh, were successful. Okay. Well, Simon, thank you so much for the time, and uh, I guess we'll uh, we'll see you at the airport, maybe. Okay. Sounds good, and I look forward to seeing you again soon, Ian. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks a lot, Ian. Take care. All right, so David, if uh, if Piper built, if we could convince Simon to build the Super Cub again, would you uh, would you want one? Would you own one? Absolutely, yeah. Ian. Absolutely. I, d- I did my seaplane lessons in a in a Piper Super Cub out on the west and uh, west coast, and I really really enjoyed it. Yeah. And I thought that that'd be one cool airplane to have and good for taking pictures out of the windows. Hey, too. there you go. That's yeah, right. There you go. <laughs> all right. I think that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen, and I'm David Tulis. Listen, you can find us at aopa.org/hangertalk. Don't forget, we're now on iTunes and at Sporty's Takeoff app. All right, Dave, we'll see you next time. See you next time, Ian. Hangar Talk from AOPA. Your freedom to fly.